Please be turning your Bibles to three different places. Matthew 26, 36 to 46, and a parallel to that will be Mark 14, 32 to 42. Parallel to that will be Luke 22, 39 to 46. So Matthew 26, Mark 14, and then Luke 22. All three of these places record the time when Jesus is in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. I'm going to confess to you right away that I don't have the ability to bring out all the meaning that is contained in this episode of Jesus being in the garden. But perhaps our exploring it can inspire you to make a more in-depth and better study of this. This is an important time. Right after this, Jesus will be arrested. He'll be betrayed. He will be put on trial, illegal trial. He will suffer much torture and mocking. He will be taken to Calvary's Hill. He will be nailed to the cross. This is Jesus preparing to endure the agony of the crucifixion. What we do see here in the garden, the picture of a man, the man Christ Jesus. And so let's move along together and see this man. First of all, we see in this garden Jesus, a man of sorrows. Jesus, a man of sorrows. You see right there in your Bible, as you begin reading this episode, you see that Jesus will refer several times to his own sorrow. Back in Isaiah 53 and verse 3, Jesus is depicted as a man of sorrows. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then in verse 4 also, this is the one who will who will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. At least part of what this means is that Jesus would be a man of tremendous compassion. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We see Jesus crying on different occasions. And it shows his compassion. John eleven thirty five. you know this to be one of the shortest verses in the Bible. It just simply says that Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. But we also know this is the great chapter about the resurrection of Lazarus. This is Jesus going in comfort and also an inspiration of a family that he knew very well. Lazarus was a man who was special to Jesus. He loved him dearly. And Jesus goes to comfort uh, this great family. And of course, more glorious things will happen on this occasion. 
An interesting episode is found in Matthew chapter 8, about verses 13 to 17. This is important. If you mark in your Bibles, you'll see this is when Jesus comes to Peter's house. Peter's mother-in-law is sick with a fever and Jesus touches her hand and the fever leaves her and immediately she begins to serve. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone had that sort of attitude? Just as soon as she was blessed, she began to serve. That's the idea of being blessed by the Lord even today. Romans 6 Verse 17 and 18 says that when we are forgiven of our sins, having become obedient from the heart to that pattern of teaching, that when we receive that forgiveness of sin, whereas we were the servants of sin, we have now become the servants of righteousness. And Peter's mother-in-law already understood that. When she was blessed by Jesus, she began to serve right away. So right there in Matthew 8, if you keep reading down to verse 17, you see that Jesus will heal other people and cast out some demons. And then Matthew will quote from Isaiah 53 verse 4 and say this is an occasion when Jesus will bear our griefs and carry our sorrows. You see, the man of sorrows was, was very compassionate everywhere he went. 1 John 2 verse 6 says that we ought to walk as he walked. So we ought to try to be filled with compassion ourselves. Jesus being the man of sorrows also means he was very passionate. He was very passionate. For example, look at Hebrews 5 and verse 7 right quick. Hebrews 5 and verse 7 says that Jesus in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. It was not unusual for Jesus to lift up his voice. He does this in Luke 19 and 41. And this has become one of my favorite verses. Luke 19, 41. As Jesus was approaching Jerusalem, leading up to that week of of the crucifixion, it says he looked on the city and he wept out loud. And then he followed that with these words. He said to the people, Oh, how I wish, I wish you had known the ways that make for peace. I wish you had known. Basically saying, I wish you had been listening to me. But now they are hidden from you. That's what he says. I wish you had been been able to know the ways that, that make for peace. Peace with God. Peace within your own soul. But now they are hidden from you. Not that God is trying to hide, from, hide his ways from them. But that sin had now taken them too far. So far that now they could not see. Their heart had become so hardened they could not see their way to Jesus. And it caused him to weep out loud. He was a man of sorrows. I wish we could borrow some of that passion Why is it such a crime to lift up our voices and sing? Is it a crime to go out and just be be excited about Vacation Bible School? 
Is it a crime to go out and be excited about the gospel? Is it wrong to go out in, in front of other people and be excited about the opportunity to worship, the opportunity to grow, the opportunity to talk about heaven? We need to remember, remember that our Lord will lift up His voice and He was not ashamed. And I think that's the key. Paul warns us in Romans 1.16, Be not ashamed of the gospel. Jesus says in Mark 8, 38 and 39, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, then I'll, I'll be ashamed of him when, when the angels come and when that judgment day comes. So Jesus is seen here as a man of sorrows. Let's not miss that great picture of him. In the second place, we see Jesus... Christ Jesus as a man of ultimate generosity. That's how I'm going to say it. Struggle for words here. A man of ultimate generosity. Right here, displayed in the garden. And why do you say that? What Jesus is doing here, he is, he is beginning to bear the sins of the world. He is. This was part of his mission. It had to be. It had to be. God is holy, holy, holy. Isaiah 6 verse 3. Sin is not even in the ballpark of God. God so loved the world though. That he wanted in his infinite wisdom to be able to work out a plan to save man. But in God's justice, mercy, a price had to be paid. An offering had to be made for sin. That could only come from the Son of God Himself. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, He who knew no sin was made to be sin in our behalf. 1 Peter 2.24 says that Jesus bore our sins on that tree. He bore our sins on that tree. Hebrews 9.28 says that Jesus was once offered to bear the sins of many. Thank you, Lord. He was once offered to bear the sins of many. How does that relate to the garden? Whatever sin brings to this world, Jesus bore, He bore that. Another song we sing, He bore it all. Whatever sin brought to this world, Jesus bore it. Starting here in the garden, really. For example, isn't it true that sin brings sorrow? Absolutely, sin brings sorrow. We could call off many examples in Scripture. For example, David, after his sin with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, spent the night in sorrow and prayer and fasting. That was sin that brought that to him. Sorrow from sin. Here, Jesus, it says, in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 
37, 38, 39, Jesus himself says, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. In Mark's account, over in Mark 14, Mark says that Jesus was greatly distressed in his soul and troubled. Luke says in Luke twenty two forty four that Jesus being in agony. You see what he's doing? He is bearing the sorrow of sin. That's why I say he's, he's ultimately generous to do this for us. He's bearing the sorrow of sin. What that means is that Jesus is anticipating having to bear all the weight of all the sin, of all time, of all the world. And this is coming from the standpoint of perfect holiness, the conscience of God himself. Can you imagine what that must be like? What that must have been like? The emotional trauma of Jesus here is hard to depict. It's hard to express. Perhaps that's why we read in Luke's account, Luke 22, 44, that as Jesus prays, his sweat becomes as great drops of blood. Could this be that the emotional state of Jesus is in such a predicament that it causes blood to run into the sweat glands? Some medical professionals say that's exactly what's happening. We do know, don't we, that our emotional state can affect our physical welfare we would not be surprised that this is exactly what is happening with Jesus here in the garden. What's he doing? He's bearing the sins of many. He's bearing the sorrow of sin. Here in the garden, Jesus not only bears the sorrow of sin, but he bears the shame of sin. The shame of sin. We know that sin brings shame. When Adam and Eve sinned, what did they do? What did they, do? they went and hid. They were afraid and they went and hid. Jesus will be bearing here in, here in the garden. He's anticipating all of this. He'll be bearing the shame of sin. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says he didn't despise the shame. Despise there means he thought very little of it. In other words, as he looked at the shame of the cross, he said to himself, I will not let the shame Keep me from following the Father's will. I will not let the shame of it, the indignities of it, I will not let that keep me from the cross. For one thing, as they passed by the cross, they would say, they would mock Him. They would say, He saved others, He Himself He cannot save. There's a little bit of truth in that. Because if he's going to save others, he cannot bring himself down from the cross. He must go through the ordeal of the cross, anticipating the resurrection. But Jesus bore the shame of the cross. You know, they took his clothes off. Played games with his clothes at the foot of the cross. And there he is. Can you, can you see him? 
up on that cross, no clothes, in the middle of the day, perfectly innocent. Hebrews 6 and verse 6 says that when a Christian stops following Christ, he crucifies the Son of God afresh and puts him to a, a brand new open shame. That tells us that the first crucifixion of Jesus, the original literal crucifixion of Jesus, was full of shame. And then how is it that someone who has come to know the Lord can turn their back on him? When they do, it's just like Jesus being crucified once again. I don't want to face God in that kind of situation. Jesus not only bore the sorrow of sin, he bore the shame of sin. I would say also he bore the seduction of sin because no one sins unless they first believe a lie. That's what the devil's about. He's the father of liars, John 8, 44. When you sin, you have believed the lie, at least for a few seconds. Don't take long. You've believed some sort of lie. You've told yourself some sort of falsehood, and then you dabbled in sin. To get Jesus on the cross, they had to lie about him. Look in your Bibles right there in Matthew 26, and look in the latter part of the chapter as he is on trial, and looking down to verse 59, beginning in verse 59, Matthew 26, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking faults, notice this, what were they seeking? They were seeking false testimony, false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none, they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward. At least, at least two came forward and they said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's the best they had right there. Jesus predicting his resurrection. He wasn't talking about a temple. He was talking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple and I'll build it back in three days. That's the best they had. Jesus endured the, the lies of the cross, the seduction of the cross. I tell you, I, I can't leave this ideal right now. It's just too too huge in our minds. It's too it's too much to appreciate just to leave it. So bear with me for just a minute or two. I would say also Jesus bore the wrath of God that's attached to sin. Because Ephesians 5 and verse 6 says, The wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. When man first sins and whenever man sins, the wrath of God is waiting at the door. The wrath of God. And Jesus took that upon himself. You see right there in Matthew 26, Luke 22, Mark 14, Jesus would pray this. He would pray, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The word cup there means an abundance of something. Saturation. We remember Psalm 23. My cup runneth over because of serving the shepherd, the good shepherd. My cup runneth over. An abundance of blessings. But here Jesus is talking about something else. He's talking about the cup of suffering 
that he must endure so that we will have an opportunity not to face the wrath of God. Jesus is no coward here. But it does bother him deeply to have to do this. I believe one reason that it bothers him so deeply here is because unlike any other person, Jesus knew the wrath of God. Jesus is, was part of the Godhead that brought the destruction upon the world in Noah's day where only eight souls were saved by water. Jesus is, was part of the Godhead that brought the destruction upon Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 18 and 19. Jesus is, was part of the Godhead that brought the destruction to Pharaoh and the Egyptians as they pursued God's people all the way into the Red Sea. Jesus knows the gates of hell. And it is disturbing him deeply here that there will be some who will choose not to follow him, not to take advantage about of what he's about to do for all mankind. No wonder he prays the way he prays. I would also have to say that, that Jesus bears the weakness of man in sin. The weakness. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. What, did they have any answers? They have no answers. They sin, what are they going to do? All they need to do is just hide and, and, and see what happens. They had no answers. No answers. Romans 5 verse 6 says, While we were yet weak, Christ died for the ungodly. One of the strongest words here in the garden, as Jesus prays, is this word, nevertheless. Find it, if you don't mind. I know it's in Luke twenty-two forty-four. It's here in Matthew 26 and Mark 14. Nevertheless. As he prays, he says, If it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Nevertheless is the word that stands between heaven and hell for us. Aren't you thankful that Jesus not only said that word, but he carried out that word? Nevertheless. See, Jesus bore the weakness of man as well. And I would have to say that Jesus bore... The condemnation of man that comes because of sin. We remember in the Garden of Eden, God will call. He will pronounce judgment upon both the man and the woman and even Satan himself. Judgment comes with disobedience. What was going to happen? Jesus would have to bear that. Now is it true or not that Isaiah 53 in its prophecy of Jesus, does it actually say that Jesus would be smitten of God? Smitten of God. You know it does. Verses 5 and 6, I believe it is, Isaiah 53. He was smitten of God. Later in the same chapter, Isaiah 53, around verse 11 or so, it says, it pleased God to bruise Him. That's not a a typo, that's not an error, that's not a mistranslation. 
that says it. Peter follows up on it, Acts 2.23, as he's beginning to explain about Jesus. He says, all of this was according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. This is no accident that Jesus went to the cross. He was smitten of God. And how could God be pleased that Jesus was bruised in such a fashion? I've got the answer. Or the Bible has the answer. 1 Corinthians 1.21 1 Corinthians 1.21 Notice it says, It pleased God through the foolishness of the preaching to save them that believe. Why would God be pleased that His Son would need to go to the cross and be bruised? Because He knew that would bring salvation for us. Can you begin to describe the kind of love that is behind that idea? And so we see a man here in the garden, a man of ultimate generosity because it was his mission to bear the sins of many. Anything that sin brought, Jesus bore it. He bore it all. He took our place so that we could have a place with God. An exercise you might want to try. I almost tried it and just backed out of it. But on one side of a piece of paper, you could write on the top, Garden of Eden. On the top of the right side of a piece of paper, you could write the Garden of Gethsemane. Under Garden of Eden, you could put down all that sin has brought to this world. Shame, lies, pain, shame, sorrow, the wrath of God, the weakness of man, condemnation, judgment, And on the right side, you could write, Jesus bore each of these. We see a man of ultimate generosity. And then, here in the garden, we see a man, of course, of prayer. A man of prayer. Jesus is helping us to fortify ourselves with prayer. In this garden episode... He says to his disciples, pray that you enter not into temptation. That's how, we, that's how you pray. Jesus had taught us this earlier in Matthew 6, verses 9 to 13, where he says, pray to the Father like this, lead us not into temptation. Not that the God the Father would ever lead you into temptation, but we have a way of putting ourselves in temptation's way. We need wisdom. If we ask of God, He'll provide the wisdom. James 1 verse 5, that's what Jesus is saying. Lead us not into temptation. Pray that you enter not into temptation. Stay out of the environment of sin as best you can. I remember Sylvester and Tweety. I don't know why Sylvester wanted to ever go after that bony little bird. But it's interesting... That every time he went after it, that Tweety was surrounded by a bunch of ferocious dogs. 
And on top of that, Granny, who owned Tweety, had a very good way, ferocious way of using an umbrella. But the next cartoon, what is Sylvester doing? He's right back at it again. Jesus said, fortify yourself with prayer. Also, he teaches us in regard to prayer to have a place of prayer. Because Luke, as he begins to record this, this instance in Jesus' life, Luke twenty two thirty nine, he says, Jesus often went to the garden. This was Jesus' place of prayer. And notice in each of these accounts that it says Jesus used different postures, different positions in prayer. He would kneel down. Luke twenty two forty one says he would kneel down. Mark's account says he just fell to the ground. Matthew's account says he fell on his face. Jesus is leaving us an example of how to get the most out of prayer. And the way Jesus prays here is important. He prays in a very submissive way because he says, Not my will, Father, but yours be done. He prays in a very determined way because he doesn't pray just one time, but three times at least we're reading here. In the garden he's praying. He prays in a de- determined way. He prays in a very earnest way. In fact, that's what it says in Luke twenty-two forty-four. 44. He prayed the more earnestly, fervently, fervently. He worked hard in his prayers. It wasn't just Mary had a little lamb type prayer. He, he prayed hard. He prayed in a relationship type way. He, he said, Father. And Mark's account has him saying, Abba, Father. And that's the idea of a little child calling upon his father. You remember there's a difference in how you look at father when you're little and father when you get older. Abba father is the relationship of a little child to his father. And he prayed in a very specific way, didn't he? He said, let this cup, this cup, I'm praying to you, Father, about what's happening right now. What's on the inside of me right now. I'm praying this. I'm praying about this this time, oh Father. And so we see a man of prayer here. He's a prayer leader. Because he comes with his disciples. He says, I want you eight here. I want you to stay right here. Peter, James, and John, I want you to come a little farther with me. And then he leads them. The disciples didn't know what to do, but Jesus knew what he must do. He must pray. And then we see a man of wisdom, and then we'll be done. We're already done. What do you take away from the garden? Well, you see here the greatest standard ever is the will of God. Above all things, as Jesus did, so must we. We must seek the will of God and to do it. We see not only the greatest standard for life, we see the greatest attitude for life, unselfishness. Because Jesus said, not my will, but yours, Father. Yours be done, not my will. We see the greatest weakness of man here. Jesus will tell his disciples, now, you watch and pray And remember, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our greatest weakness is our flesh. 
Paul explains in Romans 8 that it's impossible to mind the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit. It can't happen. He that sows to the flesh, Galatians 6, shall reap corruption, but he that sows to the spirit shall reap everlasting life. But you can't do both at one time. The greatest danger is flesh. You can have all the intentions in the world, and I believe a lot of people have a lot of good intentions, but their flesh, their pride, their desires, their lust of their eyes, the cares, pleasures, and riches of this life gets a hold of them. And regardless of the great intentions they have, it never gets done. Jesus mentions the greatest standard, the will of God. He mentions the greatest attitude of unselfishness. He mentions the greatest weakness. He's trying to, he's trying to leave us something to think about. He's a man of wisdom. And he mentions the greatest approach in life. Matthew's account I know, and maybe one of the others as well, says that Jesus went a little farther and then he prayed. I know he's physically separating himself from the others, but I also believe that, that he is putting extra effort into what he's doing here. He wants to make sure that he's doing the will of God and then some. What a great example. And that's the greatest approach in life. When Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 and 2, he said, I know you've been doing good things. I want you to do more and more. That's the best approach. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, we must abound in the work of the Lord. Abundantly abound. When Paul wrote to Philemon, he was asking Philemon, to save him a room in his house because he he was coming as soon as he could. He was going to try to get there. He said, Philemon, I know that you, I have confidence in you, that you will not only do this, but you will go beyond. You will go beyond. That is what is said of of the churches of Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 5, in their giving in their giving, they went beyond. They, they went beyond what Paul expected. They went beyond their own means. And then they kept begging to be able to give more. See, that's the best approach in life. There's only, that's, the only, that's the only way to approach life. And we remember in Luke 6, verse 12, Jesus prayed all night long. If you're going to give extra effort, it starts in prayer. That's where it starts. If in your prayer life... You're just dabbling in it. You're getting your prayer in. Then don't expect much. Don't expect to do much for the Lord. From the Garden of Gethsemane, this time in Jesus' life, we see a particular man. A man of sorrows. A man of ultimate generosity. A man of prayer. A man of wisdom. I'm glad that we're looking at this this evening because it has helped me. I am sure there's much more meaning here than what we've been able to bring out this evening. But perhaps just what has been said or what has been read can inspire us to be closer to God than ever before.
If we're looking for inspiration, I don't know where else to go. If we're looking for some sort of push to obey the Lord or to be as we ought to be, then where else should we go? Then where we have been this evening. If you're subject, subject to the Lord's invitation, please make your desires known right now as we stand together, as we sing, uh, Brother James. <laughs>